Well, if you are even in uh, the situation that I am and have never held a cigarette to your lips in all your life, nonetheless, you might really find quite fascinating a book which I have been reading with great interest called The Cigarette Century, The Rise, Fall, and Deadly Persistence of the Product that Defined America. In it, uh, history professor Alan Brandt, uh, history of medicine professor Alan Brandt at the Harvard Medical School, has written a very discerning look at how cigarettes came to be such uh, a central part of American culture, uh, rising from only a very peripheral presence and one uh, disapproved by most of polite society into something that became a symbol of of manhood, of camaraderie, um, much more acceptable for women, and then the the long struggle to identify its health problems and the desperate fight of the tobacco industry to resist those scientific findings and to undermine them. And uh, it's quite a story. Again, the book is called The Cigarette Century. It is published by Basic Books. And Professor Alan Brandt, we welcome you to the morning show. Thank you very much. I'm so glad that uh, you've written this book. It's absolutely fascinating. I have to confess, I neglected to read your biography until just as I was announcing this interview. And I have to say, I am surprised and not surprised that you are a professor of of medical history, because that's some of the most interesting stuff in the book uh, about sort of that long, arduous process of tracking down the harmful effects of cigarettes and, and, of, and of proving it. But you write about it um, in a way that makes sense to a, an amateur like me. And uh, I would have thought someone with all of your expertise, that that might have been a little bit of a challenge. You really made this very readable and accessible material. Well, I'm really pleased to hear that because that was certainly my goal. And I've always been interested in rooting medical history and the history of public health in broader history of American society and culture. And there's really no topic more central to that than the history of cigarette smoking and the health impacts that it's had in American society. And the story of how, in your words, the cigarette came to be a central symbol of attractiveness, beauty, and power. You start the book, the introduction to it, with a really intriguing personal story about a famous sign. Yes. When I was seven years old, I went to New York City for the first time with my parents, and we were in Times Square, and there was a tremendous camel billboard above Times Square in which a camel man, a smoker, blew these perfect steam smoke rings into Times Square. And I thought that was just the most fantastic thing I'd ever seen. I wanted to know how it was done. And I realized later that the industry had, had really come to understand how to tap into the head of kids, which was really their crucial market. Well, in particular, tapping into that idea of independence and autonomy, and maybe even what seemed at the time like a relatively mild rebelliousness. I mean, there were a whole, whole lot of, of inner drives uh, upon which uh, the tobacco industry managed to capitalize. Well, that's exactly right. And they really were brilliant marketers throughout the 20th century, especially in how to appeal to um, kids, how to utilize peer pressure, how to use advertising and public relations to make this 
a very attractive and appealing behavior. Hmm. Going into this, how much of this history did you know? Well, I knew what I think most of us knew. Um, We'd all seen cigarette ads and before 1970 heard them on the radio and saw them on the television. We all had seen how central smoking was in film and popular culture. And in a way, we all knew that we were told smoking's not good for you, and yet it was enormously popular. So those were the things that I knew. What I think I didn't know was just how meticulously um, imposed this was by an industry that understood human motivation, that understood that it had a highly biologically addictive product, and by an industry that would so aggressively deny the harms of the product that they had come to understand in their own laboratories. Hmm. I want you to explain one line in your introduction. I mean, I, I have eventually come to, to, to discern what, what you're really talking about here, but it's, I think, of central importance. You say, following the cigarette through the century offers a fundamental opportunity to evaluate the contingent nature of historical change. Well, that really is a key sentence, because one of the things I think that most historians agree is that it didn't have to be this way. And so I was really interested in those, force, those forces and those people that built this behavior in a very deliberate and careful and strategized approach. And so that's what I mean by contingent, is that we didn't have to have a tobacco industry that sold cigarettes to so many people with so many harms in the way that it did occur. You also mentioned in the introduction, uh, you call it one of the great ironies of modern corporate history, that we have come to know more about the internal operations of the tobacco industry than perhaps any other big business in the last century. And of course, that's partly because there have been some knockdown, drag-out fights uh, involving the tobacco industry, and, uh, and only, I'm sure, very reluctantly have they had to uh, open themselves up for a certain kind of scrutiny that uh, they, uh, to this day, do not welcome, I'm sure. Um, how did you end up gathering all that you did in terms of, of, of some of the, uh, the inner workings of, of some of these tobacco companies and exactly what they did? How much of this is easily accessible public record, and how much of it did you have to uh, go after quite uh, aggressively? Well, it's a really interesting question. When I first started working on the book, I talked to people in the tobacco industry, and they said they would not help me. And I wasn't really surprised because this is an industry that was notoriously secretive and insulated. But what happened was that as a result of people suing the industry, and very often people would sue and lose, they nonetheless began to chip away at getting some access to the internal documentation of the industry. And then some whistleblowers um, took documents out of the industry and made them public. And eventually, as a result of the litigation, literally millions of documents, in fact, the most secret documents, um, became available to the public. So I was... I went from having no documentation about this industry to really having boatloads of secret papers. And it's a really sordid story. What these documents show 
is that the industry knew at a very early time that there were any number of carcinogens in tobacco smoke. They knew that filters did not make their products safe. And yet all the while, the industry was developing strategies to deceive the American public. So it's a much more dramatic and moral story um, than I had really anticipated. Hmm. We're speaking with uh, Professor Alan Brandt about his book, The Cigarette Century, The Rise, Fall, and Deadly Persistence of the Product that Defined America. You actually begin by talking about tobacco in general and uh, the way in which tobacco shaped much of life on the North American continent. This is well ahead, of course, of the invention of cigarettes when tobacco was used in any number of, of other ways. But um, tell us how, the, uh, in your words, the demands of tobacco cultivation shaped the character of the colonists. Well, from the very early colonies, when Europeans began to cultivate tobacco, it was hard to grow, and it involved meticulous care through the season to evaluate the leaf, when to harvest it, how to cure it. And so tobacco growers became very much oriented towards their expertise and a sense of honor about what they were doing. And it really shaped early American politics. It shaped the revolutionary ethos of independent farming. It was a critical element in the crucial need for new labor, which led to the incorporation of slavery into the tobacco economy. And it was the major cash crop of the early colonies, sending tobacco back to England and to Europe. So partly what I wanted to show is that um, this is a product that has these deep roots in American culture and economy. And so in the 20th century, when the cigarette really takes off, um, it would be no simple matter to, um, to end the epidemic of disease associated with such a popular and lucrative product. Hmm. It's an interesting history when we talk about cigarettes in that... Uh you tell us cigarettes have actually, in, in fairly primitive form, existed for centuries, but that the, the thing that we would recognize as the modern cigarette is a little more uh, recent invention. Well, that's exactly right. And the cigarette as we know it was really invented in the last decades of the 19th century when certain industrialists, especially James Buchanan Duke, fixed on the idea of mass technological rolling machines that could produce hundreds of thousands of cigarettes in a day. And then he had a problem. If I've now overproduced cigarettes, which were not that popular a product, how am I going to sell them? And he really innovated in terms of advertising, public relations, and marketing in ways that would become very characteristic of the 20th century, but in many ways that the tobacco industry actually invents around the turn of the 20th century. Hmm. Yes, you say uh, Duke understood that the solution to overcapacity, and that was created by, of course, this modern technology, which was making many, many, many more cigarettes than anyone at that moment in time could ever hope to smoke. Duke understood that the solution to overcapacity involved the aggressive solicitation of new smokers. Well, that's right. And so many aspects of what today we've called our consumer culture was about this idea of production and then demand. And how are you going to create demand 
for products often which are marginal, ephemeral, um, like the cigarette. Hmm. And just it's just kind of an interesting little sidelight. You you mentioned that as consumption of, of of tobacco and cigarettes, especially, really increased. One of the things that needed to be developed was a safe and convenient mode of ignition. Well, that's right. We didn't have safety matches really until the invention of the cigarette. And one of the technologies that the cigarette's success was dependent upon was the development of an easily carried matchbook that wouldn't ignite in your pocket. And so eventually, especially the Diamond Match Company perfects the idea of these non-toxic matches. And this is really the, the handmaiden of the cigarette in terms of its success. Hmm. You say that from its inception, the cigarette targeted the uninitiated, young people for whom it was the first form of tobacco consumption. It was sort of like a starter set for tobacco, in a sense. Well, I think that um, Duke and his, the, his early um, competitors in the tobacco industry knew that the most seasoned tobacco users might be pipe smokers and cigar smokers. In many places in the country, people chewed tobacco. So he really wanted a product that would appeal to youth. So, for example, um, Duke is one of the first people to utilize trading cards, and the earliest baseball cards are tobacco cards. And kids were encouraged, especially young boys, collect them all, get a full set. And this is an example of that tapping into a um, child's or adolescent's mentality and many boys started smoking at the turn of the century so they could collect the entire um, league of baseball players. Hmm. One of the f- most fascinating things about all this is the transformation of a large swath of the American populace that at one point felt one way about cigarette smoking and then came to release a lot of those prejudices. I mean, not everybody, but but many, many Americans. You say that uh, uh, for, for a certain number of Americans, the cigarette around the turn of the century represented many of the evils already associated with alcohol, wastefulness, indulgence, a poison harmful to self and others. And you recount in your book uh, much of the efforts of some of the same crusaders to limit alcohol and to limit um, cigarettes. How fascinating that it is the first world war in many respects that uh, signals kind of a turnaround in American attitudes about the cigarette. Explain to our listeners what I'm talking about. Well, I think you're exactly right. In 1880, about the worst thing that you could say about somebody is that they were indulgent and pleasure-seeking. And by the 1920s, I have many cigarette ads that say, indulge in a lucky strike, the most pleasureful cigarette. So partly what I'm arguing is that there was a transformation in American values and attitudes about leisure, about pleasure, about glamour and sexuality. And the world wars in both instances played an important role. Many boys went off to fight in France as non-smokers, and they came back as regular smokers, very much committed to the cigarette. And then this was underscored and supported by advertising and marketing. Hmm. I thought it was really interesting, especially you said that uh, there had been this campaign against um, cigarettes, but for our 
our young soldiers fighting and dying and being maimed on the battlefields in that terrible uh, uh, First World War, that in light of what was occurring, it just seemed, in your words, prudish and completely out of step with the moment to be plucking cigarettes from the hands of these young soldiers. It, uh, it seemed, f- in, in fact, even frivolous. Well, I think that that's really right. And the cigarette's always been evaluated on the basis of its risk in a particular context. And so even though there was a strong moral opposition to giving soldiers cigarettes, in the face of this war, which was so violent and there were so many deaths, the idea of denying cigarettes seemed like a very, um, a very stingy um, approach to supporting the troops. And in fact, General Pershing, who directs the First World War's military efforts, says tobacco is as important as bullets um, for the war effort and in maintaining the morale of the troops. Hmm. And you mentioned that uh, in that warfare experience, the camaraderie of war came to be symbolized in the sharing of a cigarette, a new commodity of morale. Well, the tobacco industry certainly pounces on this, uh, in a sense, sort of newfound respectability for the cigarette. And one of the results of their aggressive marketing campaigns is the rise of national brands. And this is really one of the ways in which our our, our cultural landscape is, is vastly reshaped from the way it had worked before. Well, that's right. And again... The industry innovates to create national brands. It saw the economies of scale. Instead of having small regional markets with literally hundreds of brands, which had existed um, in the 19th century, really fixing on a single brand, hiring Madison Avenue advertising agencies to promote it, was really part of our culture moving from what have often been called island communities really developing a single national consumer culture. Camel is one of the first major national brands. It's soon joined by Lucky Strikes from American Tobacco, and these brands went head-to-head in competing for American customers. Hmm. Um, You talk of how tobacco began going after um, women consumers, although this was really, for a while at least, swimming upstream, but eventually that tide turned as well. Well, that's right. This was a taboo that the industry was very eager to overcome because they understood after World War I, if they could only advertise directly to men, they would be missing half the potential market. So they really broke through this taboo by hiring public relations consultants and eventually moving towards the direct advertising to women associating smoking with glamour, fashion, sexuality, and by 1930, the industry is aggressively pursuing this half of the, of the market. You tell us a little bit about some of those early ads that featured Amelia Earhart or, in an infamous case, uh, opera star Madame Ernestine Schumann-Heinck without her approval. Right. And you also tell about how one of the ways they marketed to women was to suggest tobacco as a substitute for candy, that it might even be more healthy than candy. And boy, they brought on themselves the wrath of the uh, National Convectioners Association, you tell us. Well, they were always just one step ahead. And this idea that smoking might be associated with thinness and then also making 
thinness part of a cultural ideal for women. So we, of course, remember the Virginia Slims campaigns from the 1960s and 70s. But really, this was an idea of the 1920s and 30s. So celebrities, endorsements, and all of these ideas of smoking in film and media were crucial to building the behavior in the early 20th century. Hmm. Well, and to building this identity of, of national brands, although you talk of a of a study done in the 1940s, which really <laughs> revealed that there was no discernible difference between these various brands of cigarettes, and yet, uh, and yet, there the American public was was falling prey to this uh, uh, extensive uh, and aggressive uh, advertising and PR work. I mean, the likes of which the world had never seen. Well, that's right, and people were very loyal to their brands, but when they were tested in blind tests, could you identify whether you were smoking a camel or a lucky strike or an old gold? They found that most consumers actually couldn't identify their brands blindfolded, but they would say, I only smoke old gold. And this was really what the industry wanted to create, this kind of intensive brand identification that the brand said something about the consumer. Hmm. You, uh, of course, uh, take us through some of the most interesting material in the book, in the chapter called uh, More Doctors Smoke Camels, in which we are told about the, the slowly dawning realization that there is the potential for terrible, terrible harm uh, in tobacco and cigarettes specifically. And yet this is a long struggle for scientists to actually prove this. And, and the story of that struggle is really, in part, the, the, the story of, of what exactly science is. Well, that's right. How do we know and how can we prove something? These are crucial elements in the history of the cigarette. And there was always concern on the part of physicians and the public about the health impacts of smoking. But it did take time to see the impacts in human beings. And there was a slow but steady, impressive rise of lung cancer from 1900 to 1940 that began to implicate the cigarette. And then researchers really began to demonstrate conclusively, certainly by the early 1950s, that in fact smoking caused lung cancer. And of course, the tobacco industry is not about to take this uh, lying down. You, you write of the new and unprecedented public relations strategy, which was, in a phrase, to disrupt the emerging consensus on the harms of cigarette smoking. What a, what a great way to put it. Well, that's right. The industry did everything it could to disparage and confuse what were emerging as major scientific findings of critical importance to the smoking public. And so they hired a public relations firm. They hired a lot of scientists. And they kept saying over and over again, there is no proof. There is no proof. We need more science. But now we understand, especially with the availability of the document, that this was perhaps the first major scientific disinformation campaign of the 20th century. I thought in interesting, especially you said the, the strategy of, of someone named Hill, who was one of the great strategists in this, in this struggle, was for ending the hysteria, in quotation marks, by insisting that there were two sides to this. But just the fact that 
one calls the, the mounting concerns about cigarettes to, to brand it as hysteria was in and of itself a, a brilliant PR move. Well, that, that's exactly right. And Hill was brilliant. And he understood that the best thing to say is don't deny that cigarettes cause disease. Say, we need to understand more. Let's calm down and be reasonable about this. Let's hear all sides. And um, like many other issues in modern science, this had a way of reassuring the public. Meanwhile, the industry starts to put filters on the cigarettes, filters that they know do not remove the carcinogens. And the American public, a decade later, is smoking more than ever in spite of the new science. Hmm. Your book includes um, generous illustrations of, of much of the material that was used for advertising uh, cigarettes, and in particular many which utilize the images of medical doctors, um, which is just a kind of a frightening thing. How close a parallel would you say we can draw between this struggle to understand this potential harm and, for instance, something like global warming? In some respects, it seems like a, a, an interesting parallel, maybe one that is not as close as we might be tempted to draw. Well, I think it is an important analogy, because in the global warming debate, it's been, well, there's uncertainty. And what we understand about uncertainty is it leads to failures in public interventions, in legislation, in new strategies for control. So the industrial interest in uncertainty on global warming really borrowed a page from the tobacco wars and the debates about the harms of tobacco. Hmm. A fascinating book and story. Again, the book is The Cigarette Century, The Rise and Fall and Deadly Persistence of the Product that Defined America. It's published by Basic Books, the author, uh, Alan Brandt, Professor Brandt uh, from the uh, Harvard Medical School. Uh, Professor Brandt, I thoroughly enjoyed your book. I thought it was just incredibly fascinating, and I hope many people will seek it out and read it as I did. And I thank you for joining me today on The Morning Show. Thanks so much.